reached our cruising altitude, it's time for the flyover. Welcome back to Flyover View, a member of the Heartland Pod family, a podcast, and a look at Heartland news from 30,000 feet. From the Gateway Arch to the Rocky Mountains, I'm your host, Kevin Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today as we dive into the stories most impactful to you. Folks, let's begin today's show. Manchin and Schumer announced deal for energy and health care bill. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Joe Manchin on Wednesday announced a deal on an energy and health care bill representing a breakthrough after more than a year of negotiations that have collapsed time and time again. But it will face furious GOP opposition. The agreement contains a number of Democrats' goals. While many details have not been disclosed, the measure would invest $369 billion into energy and climate change programs with the goal of reducing carbon emissions by 40% by 2030. For the first time, Medicare would also be empowered to negotiate the price of certain medications, and it would cap out-of-pocket costs at $2,000 for those enrolled in a Medicare drug plan. It would also extend expiring enhanced subsidies for the Affordable Care Act coverage for three years. The announcement comes at a crucial time for Congress, as the Senate is a little over a week away from starting a month-long recess when many Democrats will campaign for re-election. Manchin's support is notable, given his stance earlier this month that he would unequivocally not support the climate or tax provisions, the Democratic Economic Package, which appear to torpedo any hope that Democrats had of passing legislation to fight climate change in the near future. But Schumer and Manchin have been in revived talks since July 18th and locked down a deal Wednesday, according to a source familiar with the matter. Manchin had thrown cold water on doing tax and energy provisions as part of the deal, but ultimately agreed to it. The White House has signed off on this deal, Biden said in a statement, and the deal still faces multiple hurdles before it can make it to Biden's desk, including the parliamentarian and having to pass both chambers of Congress, where practically any Democrat could sideline or delay the passage. In a statement, Schumer's office said the bill would reduce U.S. carbon emissions by roughly 40% by 2030. Clean energy tax credits would drive the majority of these emission reductions. Tax credits for electric vehicles made it into the New Deal, according to two Senate Democratic aides. Electric vehicle tax credits will continue at their current levels up to $4,000 for a used electric vehicle and $7,500 for a new EV. However, there will be a lower income threshold for people who can use the tax credits. This was a key demand of Manchin's. Manchin had been staunchly opposed to electric vehicle tax tax credits throughout negotiations. The deal keeps prescription drug price changes that Manchin had previously agreed to, including empowering Medicare to negotiate the price of certain costly medications administered in doctor's offices or purchased at the pharmacy. It would also redesign Medicare's Part D drug plans so that seniors and people with disabilities wouldn't pay more than $2,000 a year for medication bought at the pharmacy. And the deal would require drug companies to pay rebates if they increase their prices in the Medicare and private insurance markets faster than inflation. Altogether, the drug price provisions would reduce the deficit by $288 billion over a decade. The agreement also calls for extending the Enhanced Affordable Care Act subsidies for three years. An earlier deal would have continued the beefed-up subsidies for two years, which meant they would have expired just after the 2024 presidential election, a scenario that congressional Democrats did not want to encounter. The subsidies were expanded through this year as part of the Democrats' $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package, known as the American Rescue Plan, which was enacted in March of 2021. They have made health care coverage on the Obamacare exchanges more affordable, which led to record enrollment this year. Enrollees pay no more than 8.5% of their income toward coverage, down from nearly 10% 
and lower income policyholders receive subsidies that eliminate their premiums completely. Also, those earning more than 400% of the federal poverty level have become eligible for help for the first time. To raise revenue, the bill would impose a 15% minimum tax on corporations, which would raise $313 billion over a decade. While details on the current deal remain scant, the House version of the Build Back Better package would have levied the tax on corporate profits that large companies report to shareholders, not to the Internal Revenue Service. It would have applied to companies with more than $1 billion in profits and yielded a similar revenue-raising figure. The current deal also aims to close the carried interest loophole, which allows investment managers to treat their compensation as capital gains and pay a 20% long-term capital gains tax rate instead of income tax rates of up to 37%. Eliminating this loophole, which would raise $14 billion over a decade, has been a longtime goal of congressional Democrats. The package also calls for providing more funding to the IRS for tax enforcement, which would raise $124 billion. Democrats say families making less than $400,000 per year would not be affected, in line with a pledge by Biden. Also, there would be no new taxes on small businesses. In total, Democrats say the deal would reduce the deficit by more than $300 billion. <laughs> Explaining Kansas's confusing abortion amendment. Next week in Kansas, abortion rights will face the first test at the polls since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. In 2019, Kansas's Supreme Court ruled that the state's constitution protects the right to an abortion. On Tuesday, voters will be asked to weigh in on a proposed amendment that would explicitly remove that right opening the way for Kansas's Republican-controlled legislature to further restrict or ban abortion outright, just as neighboring Texas, Oklahoma, and Missouri have done. You'd be forgiven if you had trouble making sense of the amendment's text, which would add a paragraph to the state's constitution that says both Kansas does not require government funding of abortion and that people, through their elected officials, may pass laws regarding abortion, including, but not limited to, laws that account for circumstances of pregnancy resulting from rape or incest or circumstances of necessity to save the life of a mother. The language could trip your average voter up, says Neil Allen, a political scientist at Wichita State University. You could read it and think you were voting to eliminate state funding of abortion when there is no state funding of abortion. And there is language that refers to exceptions to preserve the health of the mother and for rape and incest, but there's nothing about the amendment itself that would create those exceptions. Supporters of the amendment organizing under the banner value them both a reference to valuing women and unborn children, have been working to convince voters that a yes vote on the amendment would not lead to an abortion ban, but would simply allow lawmakers to regulate the procedure. Many of their claims have been dubious at best and have generated significant confusion. Value Them Both supporters have stressed in their advertisements that the amendment restores our ability to place basic regulations on the abortion industry, when in fact abortion remains highly regulated in Kansas. They say the amendment would merely allow lawmakers to impose rules like requiring parental consent, stopping painful late-term abortions, and barring public funding of abortion. But Kansas already requires parental consent, and they already ban public funding of abortion, and already bans abortion after 22 weeks. The language of the amendment is confusing, likely purposefully so. So let us be clear. If the amendment passes, nothing could stop Republican lawmakers from passing a total or near-total abortion ban. And political experts say the likelihood of such restrictions moving forward in that context is very high. For my Kansas listeners, do not rest on your laurels here. Vote no on this amendment. <laughs> Veterans and their spouses can now teach in Florida with no degree. School leaders say it lowers the bar. 
Governor Ron DeSantis recently signed into law a bill that would give military veterans teaching certificates on a temporary basis in Florida. This ability to apply for temporary certification does not only apply to the veteran, but also their spouses as well. The law was passed with the hope of easing the strain of the 9,000 open teaching positions around the state. According to the Florida Department of Education, to apply for the five-year temporary certification, the applicant must have the following. A minimum of 48 months of military service with an honorable or medical discharge. Minimum of 60 college credits with a 2.5 grade point average. Passing score on a Florida subject area examination for bachelor's level subjects. And employment in a Florida school district, which includes charter schools. Many school leaders have been outspoken in opposition to this move. There are many people who have gone through many hoops and hurdles to obtain proper teaching certificates, says Carmen Ward, president of the Altua County Teachers Union. Educators are very dismayed that now someone with just a high school education can pass the test and can easily get a five-year temporary certificate. Altua County School Board members expressed their distaste for the new law at a recent workshop where the details were presented. While a subject area test may prove that these applicants might know the content that they are hired to teach, what it does not do is prove that the applicants know the intricacies of lesson planning, instruction, and assessment. These are all things that are taught in college, and teachers leaving a four-year degree program are versed in before stepping foot in a class to student teach, let alone teach on their own. While the Florida Department of Education says that each person that is given a temporary certification will be put with a mentor, this mentor is another teacher from the building, usually in the same grade level or subject error. Mentor meetings with new teachers are historically quick check-ins where the new teacher can bounce ideas and problems off the mentor. A mentor will not have the time to teach these skills to a new teacher in the meeting. This will increase the load again on experienced teachers or lead them to handing lesson plans to inexperienced, unprepared educators to teach students. There's also the worry that these temporary certifications will be highly concentrated in more underfunded and underperforming school districts. The worry from school officials is that the higher-paying, well-performing schools will have the ability to attract the traditionally certified teachers with experience, leaving the bulk of openings to be in the poorer districts and leaving even more inexperienced staff in those schools. And a big concern, even here in the Midwest, is that with many other states also facing teacher shortages, the Florida law could become a template for plans that are implemented in other states around the country. Hey there, folks. I hope you're enjoying the show. I want to remind you that we are a 100% listener-supported family of podcasts, all under the umbrella of the Heartland Pod. You can catch our flagship show, The Heartland Pod, on Mondays every week with Adam Summer, where he delivers an opening statement before being joined by Sean Diller and Rachel Parker for Talking Politics. You can also join many of our cast on most Tuesdays and Thursdays for Let's Have a Chat, featuring interviews with folks of interest from around the Midwest. On Wednesdays, the focus shifts to a rotating cast of special reports, like The Delta with Nicholas and Christina Linke, and High Country. Sean Diller's Western Political Updates. Learn more at heartlandpod.com and don't forget, for full access to the Last Call episodes and the Heartland News blog, sign up on Patreon as a pod head today. And now, the lightning round. Lightning round. Historic flooding in St. Louis. Torrential downpours sparked flash flooding in St. Louis and the surrounding areas Tuesday, killing at least one person and stranding residents in their cars and homes as rainfall shattered a record set more than a century ago. The city had received more than nine inches of rain by the afternoon, the most ever recorded there in a calendar day and about two inches more than the record of about seven inches that was set in August of 1915, where remnants of a hurricane that came ashore in Galveston, Texas passed through the area. 
firefighters had responded to about 70 rescues by late Tuesday morning. And on behalf of Governor Mike Parson, who was out of the country Tuesday, Lieutenant Governor Mike Kehoe declared a state of emergency to assist local authorities in handling the disaster. Extreme precipitation events have increased substantially over the past century and are tied to warming from human-caused climate change. The heaviest such events increased by about 42% in the Midwest between 1901 and 2016 with additional increases expected as the climate continues to warm. The attack on McMorrow backfired. In a fundraising email, Michigan State Senator Lana Thies of Brighton said colleagues like McMorrow were outraged that they couldn't groom and sexualize kindergartners. The charge prompted McMorrow to make a spirited speech in the Senate in her own defense, a speech that went viral and made her a political celebrity on the left. The result? Thies' fundraising stunt netted her less than $300, while McMorrow went on to raise more than $1 million. Kansas City's Zero Fare Transit program shows major success. Kansas City, Missouri made national headlines in the fall of 2019 when its city council voted unanimously to become America's first large city to make public transportation free citywide. Now, two and a half years later, anyone living in the city can ride buses without paying a fare. Recently, a study conducted as part of the Urban League of Greater Kansas City's annual State of Black Kansas City report last year asked more than 1,600 riders for their feedback on what zero fare has enabled them to do. The responses show how a zero fare policy makes a big difference in these riders' abilities to exercise the so-called right to the city. Almost 90% of riders surveyed that they rode the buses more as a result of zero fare. About 92% said it allowed them to shop for food more often. 88% said they could see their health care providers more easily or more often. 82% said it allowed them to get or keep a job. And 86% said it made them feel like city leadership is concerned about their needs. Beside the increased mobility and financial benefits, nearly 80% of the residents surveyed also said zero fare increased their sense of safety on the bus. The total number of incidents where supervisors were called fell 39% in the first year. And incidents per 100,000 riders fell 17%. Justice Department files lawsuit against poultry producers in the United States. The Justice Department filed a lawsuit Monday against some of the largest poultry producers in the United States, along with proposed settlements seeking to end what it claims to have been long-standing deceptive and abusive practices for workers. The suit, filed in federal court in Maryland, names Cargill, Sanderson Farms, and Wayne Farms, along with a data consulting company known as Weber, Meng, Sal, and Company, and its president. In this lawsuit, the Justice Department alleges the companies have been engaged in a multi-year conspiracy to exchange information about wages and the benefits of workers at poultry processing plants to drive down employee competition in the marketplace. The companies did not immediately respond to messages seeking comment. The government contends the data consulting firm helped to share information about workers' compensation with the companies and their executives. By carrying out the scheme, officials allege the companies were able to compete less intensely for workers and reduce the amount of money and benefits benefit they had to offer their employees, suppressing competition for poultry processing workers across the board. The suit is the latest example of the Justice Department's antitrust enforcement targeting companies the government believes engage in anti-competitive behavior to stifle workers or harm consumers. It also comes as the department continues a broader investigation into labor abuse in the poultry industry. A foot of hail stacks up in parts of Colorado mountain towns. Snow plows had to be used for removal. As storms pounded parts of Colorado on Wednesday evening, Estes Park got hit hard. 
Not only did the mountain town, found just outside of Rocky Mountain National Park, get a lot of moisture from the heavy rain, about a foot of hail also stacked up on some local streets. While the hail that fell appears to be in the form of small pellets, based on the images and footage from the scene, thus less likely to cause impact damage, the hail can be seen covering roadways and reportedly causing travel concerns. In order to clear the roads, snow plows were called in. Monsoonal precipitation continues through Friday and is supposed to bring even more intense weather to the state, increasing flash flooding concerns around the state, especially in the burn scar areas found along the front range. And lastly, folks, go vote. August 2nd will be a day of voting across much of the Midwest. It is important to get out there and exercise your right to determine who represents you and what ballot measures pass. Be mindful of your polling places. They might have changed. Take time off work if need be. They have to allow it. Now, get out there and vote. That's all the time we have this week. I want to thank you for joining us. If you have a story you feel I should look into and possibly highlight on the show, please tweet me throughout the week at KevInMidmo or the pod's parent account at The Heartland Pod. This week's episode featured reporting and information from Out There Colorado, Fox Business, Politico, Next City, The Washington Post, USA Today, the Florida Department of Education, CNN, Vox, and The Advocate. Thanks for listening. The Flyover View is a production of MidMap Media, LLC. Learn more at www.heartlandpod.com or at the Heartland Pod on Twitter. See you all next week.